Well, good morning. Welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church. And if you joined us online, a special welcome. Thank you for joining us and connecting with us today. And, and we miss you. I'd love to have you come and join us. And for those of you that are here today, great, grateful to see you here today. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. We started the study of Matthew uh, the first week in June. And we are going to be progressing through this book. We'll be taking a few chapters at a time. We invite you to uh, make the reading of Matthew, a habit throughout this month and next month. We will be in the book of Matthew all through July and we'll be ending the end of July, 1st of August, and then we move into a whole new series. So um, take advantage of the nook too before you leave. If you haven't done so, uh, Roberta has picked out some wonderful books uh, to help us to understand the book of Matthew better. Uh, this particular one is a, a workbook. There are some leading questions and fill in the blanks and will help you to understand the book a whole um, in a greater way than just coming here on Sundays. And then there's a wonderful commentary by Warren Worsby. Those are available in the Nook, which is a bookstore just right here behind these walls. Well, aren't you great, grateful for air conditioning? <laughs> Praise the Lord, huh? This is gonna be a hot one today. And man, I'm glad that we're able to be here in this wonderful comfort and we can read God's word and, and study it. So let's just do just a, a little bit of a review. If we were to... When you read all of Matthew, from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28, there is a theme, uh, a thread, so to speak, that runs right through every page, every chapter of the book of Matthew. And that theme can easily be summarized that Matthew would say, the Jesus who was promised has come. Came and uh, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. And this Jesus who he had long looked for, the Messiah who he had long had looked for, came, we killed him, he died, he rose again, and he's coming again. This one that we have long been waiting for, he came, we killed him, he died, but he's rose again as alive today and coming again. That is the theme of Matthew, and he's communicating it to a Jewish audience. So when you, if you could look at the chapters, and we're going to be in chapter 10 here today, chapters 1 through 4, Matthew presents the promised one, the promised Messiah. Uh, he's saying that this, in fact, over 10 times through these chapters, these four chapters, he presents, look back in the Old Testament. See how it was prophesied he was going to be born in Bethlehem? He was. See how, uh, uh, how God spoke to him and, and when he was being baptized, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Over 10 times he refers back to Old Testament scriptures to validate the one that we have been looking forward to has come. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, Matthew presents him and his kingdom teaching. He's saying, this is what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God. Those who are following me, this is how they think, how they are countercultural. They're like salmon swimming upstream. And so he'll say things such as, you have heard it said, and we have heard these things, thou shalt not kill. Pretty simple. If I can just get through life without killing anyone, God will be pleased with me. And Jesus says, no, there's so much more. Because sin begins, it's a heart issue. It's a sin issue, not a behavior issue. It's a rebellious heart that says, God, I don't care who you are. I don't care that you have made me. I don't care what you think. I'm gonna do what I want to do. All sin flows from a rebellious heart. Sin is not a mistake. It's not a slip up. If you're, in fact, just yesterday, I turned onto G Street, which is one way, and there were cars going the opposite direction of what they were supposed to. They're going upstream, right? Uh, they made a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. It's a reflection of a rebellious heart that says, God, I'm going to do what I want to do my own way. I don't care what you think. 
uh, I am going to be the king of my own life. That's all sin, whether it's adultery, um, uh, promiscuity, lying, cheating, any of those things, uh, all flows out of a strong will that says, God, I don't care what you think, I'm going to do what I want to do. So let's make sure we understand that. We're not confessing a mistake. We're recognizing a rebellious heart that's in rebellion against, uh, against God. And so Jesus and his kingdom teaching is dealing with heart issues. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Those are directions and commands that Jesus gives to those, his kingdom followers. And Pastor Scott Stubbert, uh, a couple weeks ago, parked on chapter six that talks about what it really means to surrender ourselves to the Lord and in regards to the things that we are anxious about. Don't, be, don't worry about what you should eat, what you should drink, or what you should wear. For those who do not know God, they worry about all of those things. But you should know that your heavenly father loves you more than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. Even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed as these beautiful poppies that you see on the hillsides of Galilee. He cares for you far more than the meadowlarks that are in the meadows. He cares for them, but how much more he cares for you. So you who know God, you who know him as your heavenly father, why are you worrying? He is your shepherd. He knows all that you need. And if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he'll provide for you. Trust me. So don't be anxious. Let today's own problems be sufficient for the day. Matthew chapter six, and Scott wonderfully taught it. If you missed it, go online, pick up his message. And then last week, Brandon continued this thought of what does it really mean to follow Christ? That when we follow him, there's two things that happen. We hear his word and then we do it. We obey it. We follow him. And we're going to see that as we look at Matthew chapter 10 today. And when we hear God's word, as it's being proclaimed even today, and we walk out saying, God, I want to obey you. I want to follow you. It is like us building a house on a solid rock. That when the storms of life come, and they will come, a doctor's gonna give you some bad news someday. Uh, there's gonna be a phone call you won't want to answer that you wish you hadn't answered that's gonna have some bad news on it. There are things that happen in life that will shatter and rock your house. And when those storms hit, you wanna make sure that your house is built on solid ground. And those who hear and those who obey build a foundation upon Christ, and he becomes immovable. He is a rock upon which we can stand. But the one who also hears exactly the same words, and get this as you look at Matthew chapter seven, they're hearing the same things. It could be like in a service like this today, and you may be here today, and you will hear this message. Some of you will say, and take it to heart, and say, God, help me. Help me to do this. Others will walk out and say, that was baloney. The one who hears and does not do, that's the difference. They both hear, one does, one does not is like a man who builds his house on the sand. Because the things you build your life upon, your 401k, your 403b, the security of your job, whatever it is, your marriage, your family, the happiness of your kids, you build your life and you pursue those kind of things, that's sandy soil. That is sandy ground. One of my early counseling appointments had a gentleman come into me years and years, over 25 years in the sheetrock industry. And he lost his job. He had no clue what to do next. The sand had washed out right underneath his feet. You don't want to be that. You want to be on planted solid ground on Christ the rock upon whom we, whom we stand. So this theme continues on. Next week, Pastor Rick is going to be teaching about how the sower scatters the seed. And as it scatters, there's four different ways that we can respond. And we'll be talking about that next week. 
In this chapter, Jesus now is taking his disciples. He's selecting 12. Mark tells us that he spent all night praying, seeking God's direction. And as he is done with his prayer and as he meets with these men, he handpicks 12 men. There's a bunch of people that are following Jesus, at least 70 more that we know of as we read the rest of the Gospels. And ultimately in Acts, we'll see over 120. So there are many people following Jesus, but he picks 12 and he says, come follow me. And there was a time in your life, in each of our lives, who've been following Christ, where we sensed God was calling us to come and follow him. And so the first few chapters, we see uh, Jesus' kingdom teaching, we see the promised one, and then we see, uh, and then, then last week, we see in chapters eight and nine, we see the demonstration of his power and his authority. And boy, there are some phenomenal things that happen. And it's just jam-packed in chapters eight and chapter nine, how how Jesus demonstrates that he has power and authority over all things. He has power over death. He has power over sickness and disease. He has power over those that have been enslaved by demons. And even the disciples, they're with him in a boat and a storm comes and they had had friends that had died in these kind of storms. They knew that that something didn't change. There was gonna be no hope for them. And they wake Jesus up, who strangely and oddly seems to be fast asleep in spite of the splashing of waves. I don't know how he could sleep so soundly. And they wake him up and says, don't you care? Isn't that interesting? Don't you care that we're about to drown? And maybe, and I I love these parables and love these stories because I can see myself in issues, things that we've had in our life. Jesus, don't you care? Why is this happening to us? Don't you care? And he stands up and he simply says to the wind and the storm, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and obeyed him. The key, the sea became as calm as glass. And the disciples after seeing it were fearful. Who is this man that is in our boat? (laughs) They'd never seen that before. And Jesus says, why were you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. That's us, right? Oh, you of little faith. So we see a demonstration of his power and authority, and now we're going to see the marks of a disciple. What does it really mean to follow Christ? So with your Bibles, we're open to chapter 10. Let me just walk through a little bit of this with you, and we're gonna pick up at 24 and read the passage, but I just wanna summarize it. So when you look at chapter 10, verse one, you see that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, and look what he did. He gives them authority over unclean spirits, it's demonic spirits, he took, and he gives them authority not only uh, over, it's shown up that they can cast them out, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And when you go into the book of Mark, it expands that, even the ability to raise the dead. And so here are these 12 men that he selects, and he empowers them supernaturally to do what he does. And they're going to go into the cities that are north of Galilee, and they're going to prepare the way for Jesus to come. They're kind of like the front guys. And they're going to go into the towns. They'll begin touching people, hailing people, praying over people, and preaching the gospel message, which is really simple. You'll see that in Matthew chapter 4, the last verse. Jesus' message was to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was their message. Guys, we need to repent. We need to stop. We need to turn for where we're going. And when we talk about repentance, what that word means is that we do two things. We change, our, we change the nature of our heart and our mind and our direction. And so I change my heart and my mind about my sin. 
I, I begin looking that I am walking down a road that is leading to destruction. If I keep doing this, if I live an unchanged life, this is not gonna end well. And repentance is, is recognizing where I am going, dealing honestly with it and saying, this is not gonna end well. So I change my mind about my behavior, change my heart, my mind, and I change my heart, my mind about who God is, that his arms are open wide. He's inviting me, he's calling me, he beckons me to come follow him and to follow him though the road is narrow and few walk down it, it's a whole lot better than going a wide road while there's a whole bunch of people around me, including my friends, but it leads to destruction. I wanna go where there's life. I don't wanna go where there's death. I wanna go where there's light. I don't wanna go where there's darkness. And so repentance involves both changing my heart and my mind about where I'm going and who God is. And I stop and I begin pursuing him and following him. And those who do will have some identifying marks that we're gonna look at, six things that we're gonna see here in Matthew chapter 10. And so we'll see in verse two the names of who those disciples are. And we'll talk more about them in just a moment. And then from verses five to verse 23, he gives them a warning. You would think that if you would walk in a town and you had the power to heal and do incredible signs, wonders, and other things, that you'd be well received. And Jesus is gonna tell them you won't be. Because of your association with me, as they hate me, they will hate you. In fact, you won't even be able to trust your own family. Your family may even be against you. Uh, your family may even think, in fact, we'll read this if you keep reading in Matthew, where the, the, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Uh, they came to get him out of it and said, do you know what it is you're doing? Uh, and so the, as, as people thought Jesus was crazy, they're gonna think they're crazy too. And the, the religious leaders had power to bring harm. The political leaders had power to bring harm. And he's going to say, in those days when you stand before these councils and these political authorities, don't worry, I'll be there with you. And I'll even give you what to say in within that hour, I'll be with you, which has been a wonderful assurance to me and to any of us who've been serving Christ. That's the background. And now he's going to talk about those identifying marks, six things that really, when you see it, boy, you know, who this person is reflecting. So let's pick it up in verse 24. We'll kind of walk through it through the end of the chapter. I'm reading for the New American Standard. So a disciple, that is one who is a mentor, one who follows another, is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple, that follower, uh, that student, that mentor, um, mentee, it is not enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house, who's Jesus, Beelzebul, the word Beelzebul means Lord of the flies, it's a Canaanite god, it's called the dung god, the manure god. Um, Beelzebul was the one over the demons. And so they're associating Jesus, and you'll see that in Matthew 12, 24, that they are saying the reason you can cast out demons is because you are in his camp, you're one of his representatives. And so Jesus is saying, if they call me, that I belong to the house of Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? That's you guys, you 12. Therefore, verse 26, and the word therefore always means when you say it, what is it there for? Everything they said before here, since this is true, what I just said is true, this also is true. So when I read the word therefore, since it is true, since what I just said is true, 
do not fear them. The them are the religious and political leaders. For there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That should cause all of us to take a deep breath because there's no such thing as a secret. You think you might be, have something in your life that you've been holding on to that you would be saying today, no one knows, I hope no one finds out. There is coming a day when all of those things will be revealed and you'll stand before a holy and righteous God where before him are no secrets and no amount of money can, can buy you out. You are there literally naked before the Father and he's gonna reveal all things and all the books will be open and judgment will come. And you will see the Father as a judge or as a savior. And you wanna see him as a savior. That's why we meet together, is to encourage us to continue to cling to Christ. And so 27 is, uh, 26 is a warning to us all. Verse 27, so what I tell you, Jesus says, what I tell you, Jesus, what Jesus tells us in the darkness, man, speak it in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaiming upon the household, housetops. You and I should not be timid to share about the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body or are unable to kill the soul. Don't feel, fear those who can destroy your businesses. Don't fear those who can make life tough for you. But rather fear him, God the Father, who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And look at this in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not a single one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. For some, that's an easy count. Verse 31. So do not fear Folks, you and I are so much more valuable than any sparrow. In fact, even many sparrows is what the word says. Verse 32, since these things are just true, everyone who confesses me before men, we'll talk about what that means here in a bit, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. He didn't. Jesus brings division. He'll bring division between husband and wife. He'll bring division between father and mother, sister, brother. He'll bring division in households, division in relationships. He'll bring division. He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household. Verse 37 deals with the affections of the heart. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And you can put in there anything else you'd want to say. He who loves their business more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus will not be number two. He won't be number three. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He should be at the top. He should be at the top of the pile of our affections. Verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The cross are the things that we have to bear. Crosses, what you get nailed on. Crosses brings death, and there are things that we need to carry the rest of our lives. They are burdens that we will bear, but we bear it for Christ. If Jesus gave a cross and he said, would you carry this for me, would you carry it for him? That's what it says. And say, who, who, does, who says, no, I won't do that for you, it's not worth it, is not worthy of me, is what he's saying. Verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Interesting how that works. It's just the opposite of what you would think. Verse 40, he who receives 
you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of it, name of a disciple given to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, a little thing like this, truly I say to you, you shall not lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your good work, your kindness, your loving kindness. I thank you for the preciousness of your word and its truthfulness in our life. I thank you, Lord, that you are truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there's no one like you. I'm grateful that you are true to all of your promises. You said you go to prepare a place for us. And if you go to prepare a place for us, you said you will come again and receive us unto yourself, that where you are, that's where we will be, and we look forward to that day. I know Rich Sasser is looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to that day, Lord, when we see you and those who have gone on before us. I'm looking forward to the day to hear you say, well done. Looking forward to the day when you say, welcome home. And so, Lord, would you do your work in our life that we might truly bear your reflection as a true disciple of you. Lord, for your glory, not for our exaltation, but for you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so let's look at uh, six things. Six marks that are reflected in these verses from 24 to the end of the chapter. Six marks of what, what does it look like to be a follower of Christ? <clears throat> Number one, the first thing that you'll see here in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. A true disciple emulates, imitates, mirrors, and models his master. As I walk with Christ, as I study his word, as I apply it in my life, I'm gonna look more and more and more like Jesus. When things don't go my way, I'm gonna respond more and more like Jesus. Uh, when I, my, when I, my temper is threatened, I'm gonna respond more and more like Jesus. Uh, more longer uh, I live as I'm obedient to his word, the more and more I will reflect him. And that's what he is saying here. We will become like him. And that is one of the marks of a disciple. The apostle John understood this. He says, if we continue in his word, then you are truly disciples of mine, is what Jesus said. In 1 John chapter 2, verses three through six, the apostle John writes, by this we know that we have come to know him. How do you know if you really are truly following Christ? If we keep his commandments, the one who says I have come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Some of you have had this experience. I've had it several times. Or an individual and just a casual conversation as I am sharing my testimony or as we're just talking about life, it's been not uncommon for individuals to want to assure me that they are okay. And they'll say this, they'll say this, it's always the same thing. Well, I believe in God. Uh, uh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Have any of you heard that before? <laughs> and immediately I'm reminded of what James says, you believe in God, congratulations, so do all the, so all the demons and they suffer. So what is the difference? And I've asked people this. So what is the difference? I share that verse. What is the difference between your belief, which will result in salvation, and a demon's belief who will receive damnation, eternally separated from God? What is the difference? Because 
a demon knows who Jesus is. We'll see this as we, in fact, you see this in Matthew chapter eight. He comes up to this demonic man and the man merely falls on his face and the demons cry out, we know who you are, son of God. Are you, have you come here to judge us? So they know who he is. They know more about the Bible than you and I do combined. I mean, they're expert theologians. They know everything. So why will the demons suffer? What makes their belief different? Really simple. The demon says to Jesus, I know who you are. You are the son of God. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords, but I will not follow you. I will not obey you. I will not worship you. I will not do anything you tell me to do. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I am gonna be king of my own life. I will not bow down and worship you at all. But I know who you are. I neither fear you or care what you think. So how is that belief different from the one who says, Lord, I believe in you. You are my Lord and my God. I worship you. I follow you. I trust you. I lean upon you. I have no salvation apart from anything but you. Big difference. And there are many who've deceived themselves. This is what John says. You say that you're in him, but there's nothing in your life that gives any reflection that you're even following him. Uh, spirituality is more than just a, a, a mental concept. It's a life change. In fact, Nicodemus, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you are a religious leader. You have been in the word all of your life, but unless, Nicodemus, you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when Nicodemus heard that in John chapter three, he said, how do I do that? How do I, as an old man, enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? He says, Nicodemus, you're getting it all wrong. There's a spiritual transformation that takes place by the Holy Spirit. And unless that happens, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, all your effort not to eat pork is meaningless before a holy father. All, all of your effort to be circumcised means meaningless before a holy and righteous father. You need to be born again. It's not what we are on the outside. It's what happens here on the inside. And a true mark of a disciple is one who's been truly born again. And there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see that in Matthew chapter 5. There's a mourning over sin. There is a longing to be with the Savior. That is the mark of a disciple. That's what it means to emulate and to follow after the master. The second attribute is a disciple does not fear the world. You see this in Acts chapter four when the disciples are brought before the religious council because of, uh, because of their teaching and the miracles that they were doing. And the religious leader said, you need to stop. You need to stop doing that right now. And the disciples turned back to him. You guys answer the questions, what Peter, James, and John said. Is it, obey, is it better to obey God than man? The true mark of the disciple is they would rather have the applause of God than the applause of man. Makes a big difference. I would rather be poor and rich in heaven than rich here and poor in heaven. The mark of a disciple is not fearful of the world. The mark of the disciple is one who is fully committed to Christ and he says, if God is for me, who can be against me? You see the, the individual that's here? Any of you recognize that picture? That gentleman's name is Jack Phillips. He owns a bakery in Denver, Colorado called Masterpiece Bakery. It's still open today. And that poor guy has been through a living hell because of something that happened in his heart, which I'll read to you here in just a little bit. 
But he made a determination along with his wife that we want our business to honor the Lord no matter what. He has a great love and great passion for people. He'll bake any kind of cake, any kind of pie, any kind of cookie you want, ever want him to bake. He doesn't care whether you're white, blue, or green, or black. He doesn't care whether you are in love with someone of the same sex. Those things aren't issues to him. But what he won't do is to take his, his craft and somehow write a message that's contrary to the word of God. Won't do it. And he's taking the attitude, you can take my business away, you can do whatever you want. I will not dishonor my Lord. I'll celebrate your birthdays. I'll celebrate the birth of your child. I'll say happy birthday on it, but I will not put on it a message that's contrary to what my Lord loves and what, and what his word says. Listen to what, this is a news article about Jack Phillips. For over eight years, Jack has suffered. He's faced threats and government punishment simply because he runs his business according to his faith. In 2012, Jack declined a request to create a wedding cake celebrating a same-sex marriage. Jack explained that he would be happy to design a cake for the customers for a different event or sell them anything else in his shop. But he does not create cakes expressing messages or celebrating events that conflict with his deeply held religious beliefs. That even extends to Halloween messages. He will not put on a cake images of death. He will not celebrate death on a Halloween cake. And so it's, it's far more than uh, same-sex stuff. Still, the couple filed a complaint. The same-sex couple filed a complaint in the state of Colorado, punished Jack for living in accordance with his faith. That ultimately went to the Supreme Court. And twice now, and the Supreme Court finally ruled is that you are unfairly antagonizing him and there's a whole lot more to the story you can read on it, but it's, it's real interesting. He is in a third lawsuit. But listen to this. Both Jack and his wife, Debbie, were raised in church-going families, but neither put much stock in what they learned. They started their own family with zero interest in anything related to faith. So they grew up in a Christian home, but when they got married, had little things to do with the Lord. But that all changed one morning as Jack finished a late shift and started driving home. Jack says, I just felt like God came into my car and convicted me of my sins. He says, recalling the conversation, conversion, conversation in his heart, it just took a few seconds. You're a sinner. You need a savior. It's Jesus Christ. Jack said, you're right. Let me clean up my life. He said, you can't. I said, you're right. I'm yours. So I gave my life to Christ driving home from work. Listen to this. Telling Debbie wasn't so simple. Weeks before, she had torn into a relative who invited them to visit her church. Jack figured that if she learned of his conversion, she'd leave him. But he couldn't sleep. The voice in his soul kept urging him to tell her. He walked out to the kitchen. I need to tell you something, he said. I became a Christian today. Tears came to his eyes, remembering what came next. Me too, she said, three days ago. But listen to this. Listen to this. This is what they said together. We don't want God to be part of our lives on just Sundays. We want him to be a part of our lives every day. And that's being tested. Jack Phillips doesn't support a message that promotes the idea that a person's sex is anything other than a mutable, God-given biological reality. And right now, he's undergoing a lawsuit 
because a lawyer who's transitioning theoretically from a man to a woman wanted a cake to reflect that with those messages. And he says, I won't do that. Bake any other cake, but I will not put on it a message <clears throat> that is contradictory to God's statement that he has made you a man and uh, not has made you a woman. That's something. He knows what it is, and he has taken the position. You can take my business away. I like my business. I love doing, I love serving people, but I will not use my craft to demean a God that I love. And he's paying the price for that today. Thirdly, a true disciple confesses the Lord. The word confess means to acknowledge, agree, admit, to declare. It literally means to step across the line. So a confession isn't just um, a verbal acknowledgement. It is a clear statement of loyalty that says, I stand with Jesus. So you've seen those movies where the captain of a ship gets on a beach and he draws a big line in the sand and says, who will join me? And there's a pause. And then one after another steps across the line and says, Captain, we're with you. We'll go to the hill with you. We'll die for you. We'll die with you. Whatever you want. We are all in. That's what the word confession means. And so in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is not a verbal acknowledgement of his position. It's a recognition that not only is he Lord of all, but he's Lord of me. And I am following him. I am submitting to him. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus is my Lord, and I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is true today. If you are here today and you are far away from the Lord, come, his arms are open wide. It's not too late. He will not kick you out. He will not turn you away. If you confess that he is your Lord, if you surrender yourself to him, as we just sang, he'll receive you with open arms. And there's a beautiful picture in Luke of a son who comes running home whose father thought he was dead and the father rather than scold him, embraced him and says, welcome home. He'll do the same thing for you. Isn't that cool what the God will do? So number three, a true disciple confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Number four, a true disciple forsakes everything and that's what you see here in these, these, the stories of these um, men right here in verse two and three and four. All of these men, they had pursuits. They had dreams. They had desires. Um, Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. They were part of a fishing uh, business. They would often fish together. They knew each other. And so when they were out on the lake, there was a little flotilla because it wasn't just Peter and Andrew. They probably each had their boats with some helpers on it. Their dad was there with some helpers on it. James and, um, and John with their dad, they had their boats with helpers on it. And they're out fishing one day. And Jesus says, guys, why don't you throw your nets out? I know you've been fishing all night. See what you can catch again. And to humor Jesus, they throw their nets back in the water and all of a sudden, what a catch they got. Now put yourself in their shoes. I've been in business. I've been in commission sales. And the biggest commission you ever got is yours. And on that day, their boats are filled to the point of sinking. Fish. Up to the gunnels. Fish. And they're pulling these boats into shore. More fish than they could ever count. And Jesus comes up and says, 
If you want to do some real fishing, <laughs> you come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they walked away from the biggest catch they had ever had. That was money, folks. That was big money. And they walked away. Later, Peter is having some second thoughts. He sees a rich young world coming up to Jesus. The young man was a good man. He had done everything he possibly could to obey the law. And Jesus, that there's one thing, there's some issues in his heart that Jesus knew. And he gets right to it. He says, young man, why don't you, why don't you give up all that you got? Come follow me. And the kid went away sad because he had too much stuff. Didn't want to lose any of it. He lost it all. Peter says, Lord, we've left everything for you. What's in it for us? And Jesus has this incredible response. He says to Peter, James, and John, the rest of the guys, guys, I tell you this, no one who will ever have left father or mother, sister or brother, and get this, in farms for me that won't receive this and much more when you see me. Isn't a wonderful promise that God will never be a debt to us? He sees everything, every sacrifice that we have ever made, and he will not be indebted to us. There will never be a point where we will see him and say, that's it, that's, that's what that was worth. And then he will say, even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ has an incredible reward that will never tarnish or go away or ever be lost or stolen. An eternal treasure is awaiting us in glory for those things that we've done in the name of Christ. A disciple is one who's willing to forsake everything for Christ. I surrender all. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and follow him is the song that we sung today. George Beverly Shea put music to a song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. Is that your heart? Is that your heart? You'd rather have Jesus? Number five, a true disciple offers his own life. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, it's all about living for Christ. If I die and he was in prison, and that was a possibility. <laughs> I gain. There's a wonderful passage in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And it says, They overcame him, referring to Satan, who's accused, who accuses us before the Father day and night. You know, Satan's in heaven as an accuser. He sees all that we do. And day and night, he prosecutes us, accuses us before the Father. And it says, and we overcame him and those accusations of three things. The blood of the lamb was shed for you and me. We've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. We've been forgiven by the blood of the lamb. Secondly, by the word of their testimony, that confession that I stand with the Lord. And thirdly, and get this, they did not love their life more than death. Folks, when you can come to that place where you can say like Jack Phillips said, you can have it all. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than all the silver and gold and all the fancy cakes I could ever make. I'd rather have Jesus than any applause that I might ever get. I want Jesus' applause. I want to hear his approval more than man's approval. <coughs> Boy, when you come to that place, you are free. You are free. When you're holding on to something and you say, Jesus, you can have everything but this, you're not free. You're not free. That thing will be like a cancer in your life. You say, Lord, I'd rather, you know, you can have all of me, just don't, just don't take me through cancer. You're not free. You say, Lord, you can have all of me, just don't take me, make sure my business is successful.
you're not free. A true disciple is one who offers his own life and says, Lord, here am I. As a living sacrifice, may it be holy and acceptable to you. Picture of the young man here is Jim Elliott. He was born in 1927. He died in 1956 with four other men who flew into the Amazon to reach an unreached people group in the Amazon jungles of Ecuador. They were an unreached people group. They had not had contact with anyone from the outside. They were going to be the first and they had guns with them. And Jim Elliott told his wife, and some of the other men do, the guns were to protect them from the wild animals that would be there. But in the case push came to shove, they were not going to shoot another human being. And the reason he said that, and he said this to his wife, Elizabeth, because I know where I'm going to go. And I know where they will go if I shoot them. And I do not want to be the cause of someone going to hell. And sure enough, they landed, everything was peaceful, and the next day something changed, and they were all killed by the Indians. When he was 22 years old, in his journal, he was a student at Wheaton College. Uh, Jim Elliott was an incredible athlete. He was a, a phenomenal speaker. He would have been successful in anything that he would have put his hands to. Some people think that missionaries are only missionaries because they can't do anything else. Jim Elliott would have been a successful businessman. He didn't become a missionary because that was the only thing that he could do. He became a missionary because that was the only thing he wanted to do. And in, and in 1949, he wrote this in his journal, 22 years old. He says, he is a fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 20 two years old. Did you written that in 22? <laughs> I was so far away from that, that understanding. But he had a call in God's life. He had surrendered his life to the Lord. And he says, Lord, here am I, use me. And he would recognize that he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep. Can't keep anything that's here. I can't keep anything. I can't keep my kids, I can't keep my wife, I can't keep my farm, I can't keep my job, I can't keep my 403B account, I can't keep any of it. I can't keep any of it. Why do we hold on to something that which we can lose and miss that which we cannot ever lose? And Jim Elliott did not want to be one of those people. Lastly, a true disciple receives his reward a true disciple is reward-oriented. Just like Jim Elliott, he, he, I would rather be poor on earth and rich in heaven than the other way around, wouldn't you? What a shame to have everything in this world has to offer and lose your own soul. Paul said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul said in Philippians 3, I forget, you know, the stuff that I've accomplished, and Paul was an accomplished young man, I consider it all rubbish, but for the cause of Christ. I press on, I forget what was behind me, I press on to which is ahead, the upper call of Christ. And that phrase, the upper call, is referencing that day when Jesus calls us to stand next to him, and he gives us those rewards for all that we've done in his name. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5 
That's what he does. And we want to hear, and Paul wanted to hear, Jim Elliott wanted to hear, Jesus say, Jim, welcome home. Welcome home. Let me show you something. And we will stand in awe on a cup of cold water given the name of Christ. And we'll be like Schindler looking at their ring and say, why did I hang on to that? The reality. And I think the tears that he wipes away is that reality. Oh my goodness. This is so real. Oh, had it got gripped my heart more. So the last question is, are we a fan or a follower of Christ? We all know what a fan is. We stand in the, in the bleachers. We've got the big cheese head on and we're painted blue and green and all yellow and all these things. And we're cheering on the Packers, whoever it is out there on the field or the guy on the field who's getting the hits, who's in the game. Am I a fan or am I a follower? Jesus just calls us all to follow him. C.T. Studd was a gentleman that lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He demonstrated what it really means to follow Christ without, without counting the cost and without looking back. He was an accomplished athlete in cricket. He was headed for greatness. And he said this, with all its fame and flat, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? I know that cricket will not last and honor would not last. And think of those folks that are in American Idol. They just, they want the top prize. It, none of it will last. Nothing in this world would last, but it is worthwhile living for the world to come. How could I spend the best years of my life in living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? And C.T. Studd left it all, became a missionary to India and China and Africa, God used him in some phenomenal ways, but some of the things that still speak to me today is, is this poem that if you're in my office, you will see a portion of this poem on my wall. I want to be reminded of its truth every day. He wrote this, only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Would you say that last phrase with me? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's a whole lot more of this poem. I encourage you to look it up. Put it into Google. Only one life. You'll, you'll see it all. But that's true, folks, isn't it? Our lives are so short. Time goes by so fast. It will soon be past. There will be a calling and appointment we will all keep. And our life here on earth will be all wrapped up. For some of us, it'll be earlier than we would hope or expect. But it will come. Only one life will soon be past. And folks, it's true. Only what's done for Christ will last. Invest yourself in the things that matter. Invest yourself in the things that will not either rust or be stolen or burned up or pass away. Invest in those things that are treasures forever that are given by our wonderful Lord who says, welcome home. I'm gonna pray. 
My wife and I will be right up here in the front. We'd love to meet any of you. Uh, if you're, particularly if you're new here to Big Valley, we'd love to shake your hand and become acquainted with you. There will be a place over here for prayer. I encourage you to come. If you carried a burden here today, uh, come to prayer. If you're online, there's opportunities to pray. But folks, let's surrender all to Christ. Let's watch him work in ways greater than we can ever imagine. He's been far away. Let's get near today. If there's a burden, let's give it to him. But let's surrender it all to him. Let's watch him work. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in our life. I'm grateful, Lord. I, I love the picture of your arms open wide and that when you embrace us, you don't scold us for our failures. You love on us and say it's all been nailed to the cross. And you say, welcome home. Lord, take our life and let it be wholly devoted to thee. Take our silver and our gold, Lord, not a mite do we want to withhold. We want to give it all, Lord, to you, that you would use it for your glory, that your purposes would be accomplished and we'd be a conduit of your blessing to others, that they might come to know you and find eternal joy. So, Lord, I just lay it all before you today. Would your words speak to us deeply for your glory in Jesus' name.